Welcome to summer. It seems to have arrived with this uh, nice toasty weather. And uh, glad you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, thanks, Ben and the band. And uh, it's just good to learn some new songs. And I think we need to take some cues from people in China. Um, Glenn Miller and, uh, and I did a, a revival service in this rural part of China. And um, I think we arrived there probably a couple hours early. And uh, we, we, we basically couldn't find a seat in the house because they were all singing. And uh, they didn't want to miss a single thing. And so they were there a couple hours early to worship and, like, get every last ounce out of, out of what was going on. And uh, it was awesome. Here in America, we're a little bit more laid back. And 10.30, we're like, oh, we got to... So anyway, a little encouragement. Um, now that I've made you all feel totally uncomfortable... Um, let me have you. Let me have you do something. Pull out your pull out your uh, worship notes from the from the bulletin, and um, you'll notice this morning's title is that is that Jesus wants us comfortable. I want you to write down something in the intro section. I want you to write down something that comes to mind when you think about being comfortable. What does that look like for you? Just just jot something down that comes to your mind. I'm not going to have you share it, so don't try to just give a spiritual answer because you're afraid you're going to be put on the spot. This is just between, just between you and the Lord. But just write down something that, that, that comes to your mind when you think about the word comfortable and what that looks like. Um, I wonder if we could read these and what, what that would be. Um, there would probably be a lot of variety here. I imagine one person, at least in the room, wrote the word lazy boy. And I know it's a brand name. Maybe that's a couple words. I'm not sure how to break that down. But um, maybe someone in here put slippers. You know, you just think of, man, when I get home and once I get my slippers on, then I'm, then I'm comfortable. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it is for you, but something, something is, is comfortable to us. And we, we like that. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about comfort, but we're also going to talk about trouble. And that's kind of the counterpart to, to, to comfort in a way. Hopefully the, the title, Jesus Wants Us Comfortable, is a little bit provocative to you. Hopefully that stirs something in you like, hmm, I wonder, wonder where Dave's going with this. Because in general, as I read the Bible anyways, um, is there comfort in here? Absolutely. There are words of comfort. We're going to read some of them today. But in general, the Bible isn't always the most comfortable book, is it? I mean, as you break open the Bible, unless you always read Psalm 23 or something, uh, there's just some very uncomfortable parts to the Bible. I think church, if church is done well, I don't think we're always comfortable. And I'm not talking about the temperature today or, or the, 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 the way the seats you know, hit your lower back. I'm talking about the fact that I think that as we journey through life together, as we show up at a community group, as we read through the scripture, as we walk with God, comfort doesn't seem to be the, the uttermost important thing on God's heart for us. I'm not going to try today to go out of my way to make you uncomfortable. But I think as we go through the Gospels already in John, I've been thoroughly uncomfortable. And I think sometimes that's just the way Jesus wants it. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14 this morning. And um, we're going to be reading from the first part of the chapter there. And just as kind of a recap of what's gone on so far in this night, there was a, an incident where Jesus comes and he washes the feet of the disciple. And for the disciples, remember, this was kind of like one of those dull moments, you know, where they're just like, oh, 
And they were shamed a little bit because here their leader, their teacher, their master is the one taking the lowliest servant's job and doing it for them. And it was kind of a big social faux pas on top of that. And so there's, there's some shame going on. They're horrified because someone has been announced to be a betrayer. Jesus has said someone's going to betray him. And guess what? He's sitting at this table. That horrified them. They're also shocked that the most courageous among them was going to deny Christ three times before the night was up. And maybe most troubling of all was they, they got a sense from the countenance of Jesus that something was just terribly wrong. Imagine as a kid and seeing mom or dad troubled by something. And you can just sense it and you know something's going on. You don't understand all the implications. You don't understand all of what's going on. But you know things are, are not good. And in essence, trouble's brewing. Remember for us, this has been two weeks since we've looked at this. For them, this is just part of the conversation. So into this setting, Jesus continues the dialogue with his disciples in John chapter 14. To his troubled disciples, here's what he says. Verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The disciples are troubled. Jesus comforts. It was true then and it's true now. Jesus is going to frame much of the rest of this discussion. This is called the upper room discourse. And if you'll notice, there's just a lot of red. If your Bible is one of those cool Bibles that puts the words of Christ in red, over the next couple of pages, you see a lot of Jesus talking. And one of the characteristics of John's Gospel is he really goes deep into the conversations of Jesus. And he records much of the dialogue. He's going to frame much of the conversation in this upper room with this whole idea of comfort. In fact, in just a couple of verses... He's actually going to promise the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about things that are quite disconcerting to his disciples. I want you to think for just a moment about what comfort is. Now, you see this picture of this guy. I want you, when you get home today, to have your feet flat on the ground. I want your toes pointing forward, not, not squatting out like this. And I want you to squat like this guy in China is sitting. And then I want you to report back to me if you're comfortable. You know what this guy's doing right here? He's taking a break. For some of us in this room, that would be like torture, right? <laughs> Sit like this until you tell me what I want to know. <laughs> comfortable is a little bit relative, isn't it? Someone might be comfortable with something over here on this part of the room, but over here says, oh, that's grating to me. I can't stand jazz music. But this person says, oh, that's what makes me feel comfortable. Think about in your own life just kind of what makes, you, what makes you comfortable. In some ways, I would say that comfort is somewhat elusive. I think people are really on a search for comfort. And people are on a search for a life of ease in general. And sometimes it's kind of elusive. It's hard to, to grab a hold of. I was, um, I was eating dinner with my family on Thursday night. And because we don't know how to make orange chicken... We import the orange chicken from Panda Express and then do the rest of the meal at home. And, um, and they gave us just huge handfuls of um, fortune cookies, which is perfect because that nailed the dessert for us. And as we're sitting there, I have this passage kind of on my heart and mind this week. And one of my kids opens, opens up this. And I just smiled because it, it dawned on me that um, Panda wisdom is some, sometimes interesting. It says, you will find comfort in a new relationship. 
I think people everywhere are on a search for comfort. People want to be comforted. It's a, it's a universal kind of a thing. When life's earthquakes strike, when a storm blows in, when the bomb goes off, when the phone call is received, and if you've lived life very long, you've had that happen to you, your search for comfort changes, doesn't it? It changes to some different things and it intensifies somewhat. March 23rd wasn't too long ago. It was just about four weeks ago or so. On March 23rd, a buddy of mine named Ed Denton, who I was um, privileged to go to college with, and he's a, he's a pastor buddy of mine, um, he was diagnosed. He went in for a gallbladder surgery and was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer of the bile duct. And um, he was basically given uh, several months to live. And um, he's my age. And we went to school together. And two weeks ago, I was talking with Ed. And um, here he is with an eight-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And it was just so strange to be talking. And he was just saying how, you know, David, it's weird because you make plans. You make strategic thoughts in planning for your family. And, um, you know, he said, now with whatever, six months, six to eight months is what the doctors have given me. He said, now it's just different, you know. And, and, um, and. I said, well, Ed, listen, I want, to come, I want to come visit you. I want to come spend time with you. And we even laughed about that. Um, you know, I said, I kind of joked with him. I said, six months ago, if you said, do you have time to go visit Ed? I'd be like, I don't know if I can work it in. All of a sudden, it seemed pretty important to go visit Ed. And um, so he lives up in the Rockland area. And so um, he said it wasn't really that good of a time. But I knew right after Easter, I was heading up to El Dorado Hills to visit some family. And, uh, and so that we would, we would try and, and kind of work out a, a visit uh, Monday of this week, this last week, um, things took a turn for the worse, and Ed was admitted to a hospital in Roseville, and um, and they said, you know what, it's it's probably not going to be six to eight weeks or six to eight months anymore. Uh, you're probably down to a few weeks of life, and it's just gotten really bad. And after a second opinion, uh, everyone concurred that that's how it was. You know what Ed wasn't thinking when he got that news was, um, and I sure hope I. I get to wear my slippers tonight. I sure hope I get some Ben and Jerry's to, to comfort me. I sure hope my favorite TV show's on. Don't those seem all of a sudden really petty kinds of things to make us comfortable? We want a totally different kind of, of comfort in that moment. So it begs the question, when you're facing that kind of trial, when you're facing that kind of, of bomb going off in your life, is there comfort available? And this morning as we read the scriptures, I just want to point out a couple of thoughts and a couple of ideas that is a resounding yes. That God has provided and God has paved the way for comfort in those moments. How does Jesus comfort his disciples? A couple of thoughts. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. One is that Christ comforts his, um, us by, by, by saying for us to follow his commands. One of the things he says here is to guard your hearts. When it says, don't let your heart be troubled, you know what that means? It means there's an active role that you play in this. Don't let means you don't let your heart be troubled. In essence, it's saying, guard your heart in this. We have something to, to, to do with it. The word troubled here is a verb. And the, the word literally means to stir up or to shake up. It's the same word that was used about stirring up the pool where people would get healed. And so I want you to think about your own life. When your heart is stirred up, 
When your mind is stirred up with all the things that are going wrong or could go wrong, where is it that you run? Where is it that you turn? What kind of actions do you take in those kinds of moments? Many people turn to sin to comfort themselves. Let me just read a couple of them. Comfort food. Is comfort food bad? No, there's nothing inherently evil about macaroni and cheese. Nothing. I've searched the scriptures. But you know what? Comfort food can become sin. It can become a kind of diversion, right? You could fill in your own, but comfort sex, comfort escape, comfort shopping, comfort dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. All those things in and of themselves are probably not wrong per se. But when we rush to them, when they take a place of importance in our life, that as soon as we get feeling bad about that sin, as soon as we get feeling bad and that that emotion wells up over us, if we turn to that, caution, we might be seeking a really unhealthy version of comfort from that thing, from that activity, from that person. One of the commands Christ gives us here is don't let your heart be troubled. Because of the way the tense is used, what he's telling them is not in the future if they get troubled. Right now, stop it. Stop your hearts from getting troubled. Maybe that's why Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your hearts. For it is the wellspring of life. Reading on, it says says that we're to trust in God. He says, trust in God. And trust also in me. Two of the commands we have are to guard your hearts and to trust in God. He's not talking about a saving belief or a saving trust here. They've already done that. Judas is already gone. He's talking about a belief and a trust through troubles. Not for salvation, but an ongoing deep trust through troubles. Now, how are we to accomplish this? You say, look, I can't control my emotions. I can't let my heart not go there. And trust is so hard for me. I, don't, I just don't know how to do it. Listen to Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. It says, do not be anxious about anything. You know what that's talking about? A stirred up heart. Anxiety is a stirred up heart and mind, isn't it? That's what worry is. You take what was once at peace, you just start to stir it up. Here it is again. Do not be anxious about anything. So it leaves the question hanging. How? I'd love to not be worried about anything. Let's read on. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, here it is, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How do you guard your heart? How do you not let your heart be troubled? Right here. In everything, you pray. And every time you pray, you take inventory and you're thankful for what's going on in your life. And it says that somehow in that process, God is going to guard your minds and your hearts. He's going to grant you peace. There's an active guarding and trusting seen in Philippians 4, 6. There's an active guarding and trusting that's being commanded by Christ. Maybe it's a little bit weird for us to think about a command as being comforting. Usually we tend to think of a command as, oh, what rule am I going to break? Someone wants to command me something, bring it on. But you know what? Commands can be really comforting, can't they? Look at this picture in front of you and think of these as two guardrails. 
See how those guardrails are, are keeping you on the straight and narrow? And when you bonk into one of the commands and you bounce off it and you go, whoops, God told me to guard, it actually keeps you on the safe, straight path. This picture, it's leading to the beach, which isn't too bad. But, but imagine, imagine that over that horizon is the way home. Imagine over that horizon is the way to God. Imagine over that horizon is the way to eternal life. Do you see how suddenly guarding and trusting becomes these, these things you can actually take comfort in? Think about your children. They actually have a lot of peace and comfort when there's boundaries put up. Child psychologists who aren't Christians at all understand this completely. A command actually can be quite comforting. Jesus is going to say in just a few verses, we'll look at it next week, He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, so it's not enough just to have the commands of God and to see them laid out for you, but also obedience. Here it is. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. So there it is, the idea that commands are actually quite comforting. You know you're in relationship with God when you're obeying his commands. He says, and I too will love him and will show myself to him. That's John 14, 21. Commands comfort, but Jesus also makes us some promises that provide comfort. Someone, someone said, it's the author is, is unknown, but I like this. It says, promises are like babies. It says they're easy to make, but hard to deliver. And all the women said, amen. That's right. The men are like, huh? No, I'm kidding. You know what? Promises are really only as good as the character of the one making it. Isn't that true? There's some people who make you a promise and you're like, eh, doesn't really matter. I don't take too much stock in that. Getting to know God's character is a huge source of comfort. But once you know the character of God and the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the omniscience of God, I want to just challenge you as a student of Christ to begin learning about His promises. Because once you trust the character of God, then you begin to see all these promises that are throughout Scripture. I'm going to point out just a couple of you, in the, uh, a, a couple to you in this short chapter of John chapter 14. But the promises of God are huge source of comfort. Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. What he's talking about with fathers, his father's house is heaven. It's a reference to heaven. And a common question for us as people who are on this side of eternity is to dream about heaven, think about heaven, wonder about what heaven is like. Yesterday I was at a memorial for a guy that I worked with for over 10 years at Valley. And um, we just celebrated this guy's life. And Kurt was leading the, the memorial and he was just sharing that. He said, you know, I, I wonder if God didn't tell us too much about heaven because maybe we'd want to get there too quick. And so he left certain parts of it kind of hazy. I don't want to try and give you some complete picture here today. I, I'd love for you to go discover that on your own. But I want to just point out a couple of thoughts to you. Sometime tonight, go and read Revelation 21. It begins to describe what heaven is like. It talks about a place of inexpressible beauty. Revelation 7 talks about a place where we're, not, we're, we're, we're no longer subject to tears. We're no longer subject to the disappointments of life. And perhaps best of all, we're no longer subject 
to that wearying conflict with sin and Satan and the world's systems that are always trying to bring us down. It's over. That conflict between relationships that you experience right now and I do because of sin, gone. Here's another thought. Hebrews 11.10 says, Looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I think for me, enough, it might be enough to know that God built it. God built heaven. That's something that we know and can take confidence in. Also, we'll be with Jesus. That's another element of heaven that I'm looking forward to. Not in the way that we are now in spirit, but we'll meet him face to face. I thought about it this way. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dad, and I love to reward my kids. But you know, when I want to reward my kids and say, I'm really proud of you, job well done, I am just crazy about you. The reality is, I'm limited by that, right? I don't have all resource. God's not limited. So if God's building a place for us, and a place of reward, just let that linger on you like a parent who wants to, to reward a kid and say, I'm crazy about you. That's what heaven's going to be like. And Jesus is promising heaven. He not only promises heaven, he promises he'll return. Verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Be comforted that you aren't left alone and that you're not forgotten in this world. sure feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? If you have felt that way, if you feel that way today, know that you're not alone. There's 150 songs written smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And many of them are saying, God, where are you? God, why are my enemies prospering and I'm not? God, I'm trying to walk the right way. God, why aren't you hearing me? And so many of those psalms just reach into the reality of life and say, this is where I'm at. And I have found so much comfort just being able to read over those and let those express what's, what's on my heart at the time. Know that you're not forgotten. We're not going to cover this today. We'll look at it next week. But look at verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus still talking, says, I will not leave you as orphans. If you're in relationship with Christ, know that you won't be left as orphaned. He says, I will come to you. I think about parents who leave their child at Sunday school with a, with a sitter for a night out. And the child's crying. And what, is, what does mommy say to the child? Mommy will be back. I'll come back. And you know what begins to happen? There begins to grow in the child a trust that, yeah, it's okay, mommy will come back. We've watched this huge metamorphosis with Cassie in this area where she just really did not want mom out of her sight for two seconds. Now, we knew that a day was coming where mom had to be out of her sight for more than two seconds. And so to begin weaning her for that, to begin growing that in her, we began to do that in a loving way and sometimes it caused tears. And sometimes it caused sheer terror. Was she ever in danger of being left alone? Absolutely not. We won't leave her as an orphan. We'll come back for her. And so mommy would just reassure, I'll be back. I'll be back. And that's what Jesus is doing to his disciples. He's saying, look, I'll be back. I will return. 
Glance down at verse 12. We'll come back to the rest of this later. But the third promise here is a promise of power. And in verse 12, it says this. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now that opens a whole can of theological worms. And I know some of you want to go, okay, I just asked God for a pony. Where is he? That's probably a whole separate message. And I'm going to just make a couple of comments here. But the thing I want you to get from this is the power that's being promised. Again, we're talking about the Holy Spirit next week and in the weeks to come. And how Christ is saying, it's better if I go away because the Comforter is going to come. And not only is He the Comforter, He's the one that enables us and gives us power in the third person of the Trinity of God. And that's the Holy Spirit. Greater things than these. What is Jesus talking about? Think about this. Jesus ministered in, in relative scope to a small number of people. Right? He took all of His godness and placed it in a body that was now subject to time and space. Because there was no air travel and motorcycles back then or mopeds, you know, he walked everywhere. And so he ministered to a small handful of people. Think about what Jesus was talking about. He could see all the way to what's going on right now. And in talking about the greater things that his disciples would be doing, he entrusted them really to 12, but minus one. So there's 11 right now disciples. That's largely who he poured all of his mission and energy into, is these 11 guys, untrained, unschooled. And he says, you guys are going to do greater things than this. It's going to be in line with the mission and work of Christ. But the size and scope of it is going to exponentially increase. Just in the book of Acts, which is not that far later in time, we begin to see thousands coming along in this movement to follow Jesus Christ and have lives transformed. A lot of us end our prayers with this way. In Jesus' name we pray. What's the next word? Amen. Yeah, we all know that. You know what's powerful to think about is I think sometimes we, we pray that way and maybe we were taught to pray that way and that's a great way to pray. But I think it becomes a negative if we think that somehow tacking on, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, somehow obligates God to do all that we've just asked, like it's some kind of magical mantra that we, that we repeat. As if somehow we are over and above the sovereign God that we're praying to. I know I've prayed that way before, because I've been praying in Jesus' name since I was a kid. You know what God has grown in me since I was a child and as I grew to understand who God was and why I even say that? Here are just a couple of thoughts. One is that praying in Jesus' name is an acknowledgement that I'm helpless to boldly enter the throne room of God unless I'm in Jesus' name. Unless I'm covered with the robe of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, God would look at me and see sin. But praise be to God, I am now able to boldly enter the throne room of Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and actually make requests 
We were just told in Philippians 4, 6, to, by prayer and petition. Petition is requesting, asking. Jesus told stories about saying, ask, 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 and then ask some more. You know how we can ask so boldly? We ask in the name of Jesus. We go in and we say, God, it's not us coming in in our greatness. It's us coming in in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name is also a recognition that this is spoken in line with the will and purposes of Jesus and His kingdom. Remember how He taught us to pray? His kingdom come. His will be done. There's times I'm praying and I just realize, I get a sense of my spirit, I need to stop and just get out of the way. There's a great song by a guy named Jason Upton. It says, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he basically says, I'm sick of getting in the way of prayer. I'm sick of praying for my will to be done and my small prayers and my small visions. If you tack on in Jesus' name at the end, it clarifies and modifies what you just prayed. Is a pony for you to bring you comfort, a little bit of joy? Or is that pony so you can ride off into the jungles and give your life away for Christ? You know what? He might give you a pony then. I mean, he might just zap a pony right there from a butterfly or something. He could do it. And you go, well, I guess this is in line with God's will. Saddle up, you know, and off you go. Usually the pony or the Ferrari or whatever you might have tried this with before maybe isn't in line with God's kingdom and his will. Finally, it's a request that the Son be glorified. Remember, glorified just means shown for who he really is in this prayer. Jesus comforts us with commands. He comforts us also with promises, but... Lastly, he comforts us just from knowing Christ, knowing the person of Christ. With this sixth I am statement, remember there's seven I am statements we've been kind of looking for. Here it is. Here's the sixth one. Jesus reveals that comfort isn't found in any place we look, but in a person. Remember, Jesus was about to die. And Jesus had this perspective of death. He understood that death was merely a separation. It was a separation of the physical body from the soul. That's what death is. And yet here he is sitting around a table of people who don't have that eternal perspective. Christ is an eternally existing being sitting at a table with guys with relatively clean feet. And he's talking to them. And he's looking into the eyes of these eternal beings who are scared to death and who are troubled. Like all people... Jesus knew that these 11 men were going to die, but were going to go on living. And so he's trying to to lift their gaze a little bit and talk to them about what's happening. Pick it up in verse 4. And in verse 4 it says this. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. This is a little bit of a setup by Jesus. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I mean, just you hear the panic in his voice, right? We don't even know where you're going, much less how to get there. That's what he's saying. Verse 6, famous verse, think about it in context. Jesus answered, I 
am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He told them earlier, you already know the way. We don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas, look at me. I'm the way. You know me. I mean, isn't that simple? It just paints it a really simple, clear picture for Thomas. What an amazing scene to have been a part of. Just to see how Jesus said this and how it it unfurled. Comfort comes a little bit different when we're facing death. We talked about this. Most people that I've ever met and know are absolutely and utterly scared to death of death. We're freaked out by it because we don't understand it. When you go to a memorial like I did yesterday and you mourn with those who mourn, what you're faced with is your own mortality. I always find myself driving a little bit differently after a memorial. I just do. I'm running around in a little tin can. My life could be gone just like that. I go home, I hug my kids differently after a memorial than I do after a regular Joe Schmo day of work. We're faced with our own fear. We're faced with the questions that are beyond it. Jesus offers the remedy to such paralyzing fear of being scared to death of death. In this I am, he is proclaiming himself superior to all other Christs, to all other saviors, to every single other path of God that's out there. That's what he's saying in this passage. I want to read for you something that um, one of the commentaries that I, I have put together, and it just was really powerful to hear Here it said this way. The Bible teaches that God may be approached exclusively through his only begotten son. Jesus alone is the door of the sheep. All others are thieves and robbers. And it is only the one who enters through him who will be saved. The way of salvation is a narrow path entered through a small, narrow gate. And a few find it. There is salvation in no one else, Peter boldly affirmed. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is a small sampling of what the Bible talks about in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way to salvation. A small sampling. I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, but absolute truth is absolutely distasteful in our culture. People are resisting this kind of language with all that they are. Absolute truth is distasteful until you're laying on your deathbed. All of a sudden, somehow absolute truth begins to be back in vogue a little bit. All of a sudden, we want something firm to build on, to cling to, to know. This last Tuesday, Becky and I visited Ed, my buddy in the hospital. His wife called me about midday and she said, "Um, Dave, you better get her. You better get her quick. I was planning on being there at four o'clock later that day. So we made about the 25 minute drive over to Kaiser Roseville. And as we got there, we arrived and there were probably 20 people in Ed's hospital room. And they were praying 
And so Becky and I made our way in and I knelt right next to Ed and I put my hand on his wrist. And Ed, you have to understand, is a pretty big, burly, tough guy. And the last time I saw Ed, he was a pretty big, burly, tough guy. And now he looked gaunt. And I looked at that body and I thought, man, he's just a shell. That's not Ed, per se. And as we walked in and gave Dana, his wife, a hug, we both heard her say that he's incoherent. So here's a room full of people who care for and love Ed and are just praying over him. And all of a sudden, as I'm kneeling there, I begin to hear Ed pray. And I open my eyes to make sure I kind of heard correctly because I didn't know if he was on his last moment or not. And I probably haven't listened to a prayer as closely as I did when Ed started praying. What Ed started to pray was this. He said, Heavenly Father, you're awesome. You're awesome. And he said, he said God, would you please give peace to all these people in this room like you've given to me? And when the prayer was done... Ed opened his eyes. He looked right at me and right at my wife. He hasn't seen me in a couple of years, probably three years. I don't know when the last time he saw Becky was. But he goes, oh, hi, Dave and Becky. Totally lucid, totally there, completely aware of his surroundings. And for the next hour or so, what we did was we just shared stories. And it went from tearful to utter laughter. Ed is a complete and utter cut-up. And so as we're sitting here talking, he would, he would say some different things and get people laughing. Chris Shelley was supposed to come and, and visit him with me, but um, didn't seem appropriate. He, he may not have lasted this afternoon. And so I said, let me, let me go bring the phone up to Ed's ear. And I put the phone up next to Ed's ear, and I couldn't hear what Chris was saying, but I kind of surmised it because of what Ed was saying. Here's Ed laying there. And his eyes are kind of rolled back in his head, and he's super tired. And I hear him saying this, lies, slander, I'm doing fine. (laughs) And he's just making us laugh. And in that moment, with Ed laying there on his hospital bed, um, his daughter Maggie, who's eight years old, came in. And um, we're standing around Ed's bed. And she walks right up to her daddy and she said, I love you, daddy. See you in heaven. And at that, the entire room lost it. And Ed, with a peace that transcends all understanding, just looked back at his daughter and said, I love you too, sweetie. I'll see you in heaven. And we didn't know if we were watching the very last goodbye between his eight-year-old daughter and him. Becky and I spent the drive home from that hospital visit contemplating absolute truth. We spent the drive home talking about the hope that we know that we have in the risen Jesus Christ that a few days earlier we had just celebrated here with all of you on Easter Sunday. We didn't feel ashamed about absolute truth in the slightest. We were utterly joyful for it. 
1 Thessalonians 4 says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now my family knows as we read through Scripture that falling asleep means dying. The next morning... Jesus got to speak with Jesus face to face. And how powerful to be in a room praying to our awesome Heavenly Father and to contemplate that He woke up the next morning in His very presence. You know what the mutual gift of that day was? The mutual gift was this. I thought to myself, if I'm Ed and I'm going to die early like this or late, it doesn't even matter when, what an absolute gift to know many hours, several days before you're probably going to die. Because a steady flow of people came in and got to say goodbye. I heard him say goodbye to people I knew on the phone, knowing it was the last time you were going to say something to them. The other part of the gift, though, is this, and this is what I want you to catch. Ed crossed the finish line comforting us who remain. Am I sad for Ed? Absolutely. But not really for Ed. I'm really sad for Dana. Pray for Maggie and pray for Jason who are only going to know whispers and shadows of who their dad was. But what a mutual gift of comfort that as Ed was comforted, he turned around and was able to comfort us in a way that few other people that day could have comforted me. And that's what I think Jesus wants us comfortable, able. That suffix to the word means capable of. If you're teachable, it means you're able to be taught. As you are comforted, as God has comforted you, turn around and comfort other people. And as I began to think about this, as I began to think about how Jesus was comforting his disciples and how he said to them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If God's opened your eyes to that reality, you know what that becomes? That becomes the comfort to the ultimate fear that most people have. And that's death. All of a sudden it becomes true. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in the victory that Christ gave us by resurrecting from the dead. And He becomes like a first fruit that all of us who follow in Him are now followed in the way that He has opened up because of His death and resurrection. <clears throat> Alex, I want you to come on up and begin to play for us. As I close, what if God wants us comforted because He cares deeply for us. I think that's true. What if being comfortable in Christ is eternally better than any comfort you've ever tasted, chased after, or longed for? What if our comfort that we've received from God is able to comfort those who are miserably uncomfortable? And I'm not talking about temperature or itchy clothes uncomfortable with life, uncomfortable in their own skin, 
uncomfortable in a social setting like we're sitting in right now. The source of all comfort is not a place. It's not a thought. It's not even a cute verse that we could somehow put on a plaque. It's a person. And it's found only in Jesus Christ. Turns out panda wisdom was correct, I think. Let me read it again. You will find comfort in a new relationship. If that relationship is Christ, amen to that. They got it right. There's comfort in knowing Christ. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to sing a song called It Is Well With My Soul. A guy by the name of Horatio Spafford wrote this in 1873. The reason this song is so very powerful to me is that Spafford decided to take his family on a vacation to England, but due to business, he was not able to go with them, so he sent his wife, Anne, and his four daughters on ahead on a boat. On November 21st, while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives, including all four of his daughters. Anna Spafford survived the tragedy and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Spafford beginning, Saved Alone. Spafford then sailed to England going over the location of his daughter's death. And according to Bertha Spafford, a daughter born after the tragedy, It Is Well With My Soul, was written on that journey. So you imagine a man on a deck of a ship writing this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, It Is Well. It is well with my soul. That transcends human understanding. That only can come from God. I want you to sing this this morning. And I want you to look for and sing with extra gusto the last verse. Jesus points to hope beyond the grave and what's going to happen that we'll be reunited with Christ one day. Let's sing this song together. When peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.
Yeah. 